verse. And last week we reviewed each of the marks. And also we examined why should we as a church pursue maturity? Why should we as a church, as a congregation, pursue as a direction of our church to seek, to enable, to assist, to come alongside every believer, every member of our congregation, and everyone else who is not yet a follower of Christ, to become a follower of Christ and to lead them to maturity in Christ. And last week we saw the answer. The reason why we want to do that is because God predestined us for maturity. God predestined us for maturity. He predestined us to be conformed to the image of His Son. Now today, I would like to connect this purpose of maturity or maturing with the ultimate goal of human existence, of creation itself, of God Himself, namely the glory of God. What is the biblical relationship between this goal that we want to pursue as a church of enabling believers, enabling us to mature, to become like Christ? What is the relationship between this goal, our goal, and then the goal of glorifying God? Are these different goals? Are they identical goals? How do we think of the relationship between them? Well, I invite you to open Scripture to Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3 to 11. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3 to 11. As you open there, if you will be hearing the birds that are around us, try to praise God for them. Ephesians chapter 1, 3 to 14. I also want to remind you this morning, we'll be looking at this passage, but really we'll be looking at a whole number of passages in the Scripture because talking about the glory of God cannot be contained simply in one passage. But let's read the Word of the Lord this morning. Praise be to the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. In him, we have redemption through his blood the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that He lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. And He made known to us the mystery of His will according to His good pleasure which He purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times will have reached their fulfillment to bring all things in heaven and on earth together under one head even Christ. In Him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of Him who works out everything in conformity with His purpose, in order that we, who were the first to hope in Christ, might be for the praise of His glory. 
And you were also included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Having believed, you were marked in Him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of His glory. Amen. Let's bow our heads and pray. Father, this morning we come before you as your people, whom you have created for your glory. And we ask you this morning, show us your glory. We pray that you would let your word shape what we should expect as we look forward to encounter your glory. And Father, we pray that your spirit would guide us and would illumine us what your glory would look like. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Well, the Apostle Paul begins the letter to the Ephesians with an elaborate praise to God. Look at verse 3. Praise be to God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Dot, dot, dot. Now, in the English language, the sentence ends at the, at the end of verse 3. But in the Greek language, the sentence ends in verse 14. It is the longest sentence in the New Testament with 202 Greek words. That's how the book of Ephesians begins, with an elaborate praise to God. Now, it's elaborate not only because of its length, it's also elaborate because of the reasons it brings for praising God. It, it recounts a number of blessings we Christians have in Christ. Now, before we look at those blessings, I just want to encourage you to, to compare notes between your list of blessings that you think are blessings and what God and what Paul says God has blessed us with in Christ Jesus. Notice verse 4, the first reason, the first blessing. Verse 4, he chose us to be holy and blameless. Verse 5, He predestined us to be adopted as His children. Verse 7, We have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins. Verse 9, He made, us, he made known to us the mystery of His will. Verse 11, In Him we were also chosen, having been predestined. Verse 13, you also were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth. Verse 14, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit. These are the blessings that God has given us believers. And because of these blessings, Paul is praising God. We could devote a separate sermon on each of these blessings. Yet today, I want us to take a step back and inquire, why has God lavished on us all these blessings? For what purpose? And the answer is, for the praise of His glory. Three times in this chapter, in this, in this passage, Paul recounts 
this phrase, for the praise of His glory. Now, if all that God has done for us is aimed ultimately to bring glory to God, how does that fit with the goal we unpacked for the last eight months of seeking to mature, of seeking to be conformed to the image of Christ? And this morning, we want to see that relationship between glory and maturity. If you like taking notes, we'll have three major parts. Glory defined, glory lost, glory restored. Glory defined, glory lost, glory restored. When you think of God's glory, what comes first to your mind? Do you think of light? Do you think of some special effects? Do you think of some reality that you just cannot fully explain? When you think of God's glory, what do you think of? In the Old Testament, the word used for glory is the Hebrew word kavod, which signifies weight or heaviness. And when this word glory is used in reference to God, it signifies the display of God's presence, the display of God's qualities, the display of God's nature, the display of His excellence. And when we think of God's glory, we have to understand very clearly an important distinction. The glory of God is not a quality of God. The glory of God is a display of the qualities of God. Let me, let me say that again. The glory of God is not a quality of God. The glory of God is a display of the qualities of God, of His excellencies, of His, of His greatness, of His splendor. So to see the glory of God is to encounter God's qualities, His nature, His presence. Now, often in the Bible, we see God's qualities at work in people's lives. Uh, there are many examples. Let me take just one example. Jesus tells Martha, at the tomb of Lazarus. Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? And then Jesus called Lazarus out of the tomb. And the whole Gospel of John, the, the first half of the Gospel of John is known as, as the book of signs, the things that Jesus has done. And, and, and after the first sign at the wedding in Cana, the writer says, and we have seen His glory. Because to see the qualities of God at work in our lives, in our circumstances, is to see God's glory. Sometimes that display of God's qualities has some special effects. Other times we, can, we might be able to find a cause or might be able to explain it. But to see God's qualities, God's nature, God's excellency, at work in our lives is to see God's glory. That's one way. But there's a second way. 
there's a second way in which we can see and encounter God's glory. And that's not only when we see what He does, but actually, God's glory is most well described and displayed when we see not only what He does, but when we see who He is and how He is. And this is the essence of the glory of God. To encounter God's glory means to encounter God Himself. What amazes me in Scripture is that the closer people got into the presence of God, always they were more frightened. The more they encountered the glory of God, the more they were frightened by the presence of God. Moses asked to show, asked God to show him his glory. And God said, no one can see my face and live. Because you cannot see the glory of God and, and live. That was the message God gave to Moses. Isaiah had a vision, we, which we just read, the vision of a throne of God. And his first reaction was, woe to me. Because the splendor of God, because the utter difference that exists between God and man and all of God's attributes just surprised Isaiah so much that he realized, this is scary. I'm afraid I'm going to die. I live among people who are sinful and my own lips, lips are sinful. Because to experience and to encounter the glory of God is to encounter God himself. To encounter who he is. To encounter how he is. Now this reaction is not limited to the Old Testament alone. If we go to the New Testament, John in the book of Revelation, when he had a vision of God right at the beginning of the book of Revelation, he said, when I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. What would happen if God showed up in His glory in these ways in our service this morning? To experience the glory of God. Why is our people reacting to the glory of God in this way? Because to encounter the glory of God is to encounter His holiness. To encounter God Himself is to encounter and realize how different God is from us. In all His attributes, He is so utterly different. And our first reaction, our natural reaction to encountering the glory of God, the holiness of God, is that we are afraid. That is what the living creatures before the throne of God are singing day and night without ceasing. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. God's holiness means that He's so utterly unique, so supremely excellent. And when His excellencies are displayed, when His utter difference is made visible, that's when God's glory shuns the most. That's when God's glory is displayed the most. John Piper, pastor of Bethlehem Baptist Church, says the following about God's glory. 
God's glory is the shining forth of His holiness. His glory is His, glo his holiness displayed. God's glory is His holiness displayed. So when we think about what is God's glory, how, what is the first thing you think about when you try to imagine God's glory? It's not just about light. It's not just about special effects. It's about His holiness being displayed. Because God and His glory is identified, or God's glory is identified as the display of His holiness, of His character, of His nature and qualities, the second thing we need to realize about God's glory is the following, that God's glory is the ultimate aim of God in all that He does. What this means is the following. God's ultimate aim in everything He does is God's glory. John Piper, whom I just quoted earlier, once posed this question, who is the most God-centered person in the universe? To which the answer he gave, as he often does, is God. God is the most God-centered person in this universe. Because God is ultimately about His glory in everything that happens. What this means for us is that some of us live with the impression that God's ultimate focus is humanity. And that is not true. Remember Ezekiel 36, which we read earlier in the service? God told the people of Israel, Therefore, say to the house of Israel, This is what the Sovereign Lord says. It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I'm going to do these things, but for the sake of my holy name. Jonathan Edwards, the pastor of, of one of the great awakenings in the United States, said that all that is ever spoken of in the scripture as an ultimate end of God's works is included in that, this one phrase, the glory of God. Everything. Now, many people are willing to be God-centered as long as they feel that God is men-centered. They can love God because they think God gives us goodies. They can worship God because they think and feel that ultimately God is pursuing man. Now, it's true that God is pursuing man, but that's not his ultimate goal. God's ultimate end is not man, but God's glory. This is clear from the moment of creation when God said, let us create man in our image. God is interested ultimately in His image, not ours. That's why He created us in His image. God's ultimate concern and ultimate end is His glory. He's so committed to His glory 
that his aim in creating his people, in, in creating us, was that we would be glory bearers. So as people populate the earth, as, as men and women populate the earth and increase and multiply, God would have all these glory bearers spread all throughout the earth. That was God's aim with creating us so that his glory might be displayed, so that his glory might be manifested from day one. That's why the Westminster Shorter Catechism begins with a question, what is the chief end of man? And the answer is, the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Dear friends, God's glory is defined as a display of God's holiness, nature, qualities, and attributes. And God's glory is the chief end of God and is the chief end of creation and of our existence. That's glory defined. But God's glory, because God's glory is central to our existence as humans, one of the ways Scripture describes the fall of man is to say that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's how central God's glory is for our existence. What a heavy description of our sinfulness to say that our sin, our fallen nature, our fallen state, our rebellion, our disobedience triggered humanity the lack of the glory of God. It caused us to be in short supply of the glory of God, to be inferior to the glory of God, and we continue to be in the state. In other words, dear friends, to be in fallen state, in a fallen state, to be sinful, literally means to lack the glory of God. Even though God created us for that purpose, one way, one significant way to describe our existence is simply to say we lack the glory of God. Losing the glory of God is illustrated in a few passages in the Old Testament, but the most drastic account is when the sin and rebellion of the people of Israel reached such a, such a climax that God decided to destroy the land. He decided to exile the people. He decided to destroy the very temple which was built to signify the presence of God. And the prophet Ezekiel receives a vision from God. A vision of the glory of God. And what happened to the glory of God, and he received this vision in order to explain to people what was going to happen in the things that God will bring upon the nation. And here's what the prophet Ezekiel saw in chapter 10 of his book. The prophet saw a vision of the glory of God in the Holy of the Holies. By the way, for those of you who are not familiar with the Holy of the Holies, it is the place in the, in the temple that was to represent God's holiness and presence in the most incredible way. So much so that no man was allowed to enter in it unless he was the high priest, and even he was only allowed to enter in, in it once a year with blood for his own sins and for the sins of the people. The Holy of the Holies was the physical place on, on planet Earth that was to, to represent 
and describe God's most holy presence. So Ezekiel sees the glory of God in the Holy of Holies. In chapter 10, verse 4, he sees the glory of God moving away from the Holy of Holies to the threshold of the temple. It stopped there for a while. Then he saw the glory of the Lord depart from the threshold of the temple and move to the east gate of the temple. Stood there for a while. And then the, the prophet saw again the, the glory of the Lord picking up and moving outside the city. And then he saw the glory of the Lord move from outside the city, from the city to outside the city, outside the gate of the city, on the mountain east of the city. So all of a sudden the prophet sees this, this journey of the glory of the Lord moving from the Holy of the Holies to the temple, to the outer temple, then to the city, eventually leaving the city. And all of a sudden, the city that was supposed to be the glory of God, the temple that was supposed to be the glory of God, the very room in the temple that was supposed to be the, representing the glory of God, all of those three places are now lacking the glory of God because the glory of the Lord has moved outside the city gate on the east mountain, on the mountain east of the city, which, by the way, is the Mount of Olives. Because whenever rebellion and sin comes in our lives, the result and consequence of that experience is that the glory of the Lord departs. We lose the glory of the Lord. And this was all a sign that God gave the prophet to forewarn, to explain to the people, this is what God is doing. He's going to destroy the nation. He's going to destroy the temple. He's going to take the people away. But the first sign of that experiences that the glory of God departed. In a prophetic way, when we reach the New Testament, we see Jesus in the temple in Matthew 23. And at the end of the chapter, Jesus says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you are not willing. Look, your house is left to you desolate. And it is not coincidental that after Jesus spoke these very words, he left the temple and went to the Mount of Olives, the mountain east of the city. And it is not coincidental that Jesus' own departure to the Father, his ascension to the Father, took place from the Mount of Olives. And it is not coincidental that two decades after Jesus' life, after his words, after he left the temple, after he left the city, the temple was once again destroyed forever without yet being rebuilt 2,000 years later. Because to rebel against God and to choose to reject the Son of God means to remain without the glory of God, which ultimately leads to death and destruction. Glory defined, glory lost. But the story does not end here. 
Because in the person of Christ, we saw once again the glory of God displayed. That's how the Gospel of John describes Jesus. Yet the angel people of God rejected the Christ, rejected the one who was the glory of God by crucifying him outside the city, outside the gate. And this time, the separation between God and humanity took place on the cross. When Jesus cried to the Father, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Christ experienced the separation. Why? Because he took upon himself our sin and our rebellion. Because to sin and rebel is to fall short of the glory of God. In the cross of Jesus, we see this one side of the glory of God being displayed in the separation between man and God on the cross. And yet, there's something unique in the cross of Christ because the Gospel of John likes to present the hour of Jesus' crucifixion as the hour of his glorification. There's something powerful in the cross of Christ because it is in the cross of Christ that our separation, that our lost glory is now regained, is now restored. And dear friends, this is the message of the gospel that we proclaim. Man sinned against God and falls short of his glory. But God took upon himself our shame, our sin, our rebellion. He himself experienced the separation from God on our behalf. But in the moment of his crucifixion, in the moment of his separation from God, in that moment we also see God's glorification of Christ. Because it is in the cross of Christ that separation and glorification happen in the same place at the same time. My dear friend, if you're here and are not a believer, if you're here today and have not responded to the call of Christ, God is inviting you today to stop relying on your own strengths. Stop relying on your own wisdom. Let God restore your life. Let God take, care, take control of your life. Surrender your life to Christ. Trust in Him. Put your faith in Him so that God may restore your life to fulfill the end for which you were created to display the glory of God. If you'd like to know more about what it means to be in a relationship with God, I would love to talk to you at the end of the service. But this is what God did when he created us. This is what God did when he redeemed us. It was all done for the glory of God. So how does God's glory connect to our maturity? First, last week, we saw that the reason we should pursue the path of maturity is because God predestined us to be conformed to the image of His Son. But as we saw, Christ, in the moment of His cross, in the moment of His crucifixion, was a display of the glory of God, as much as He was a display of the judgment of God. To be conformed to the image of Christ means to be conformed to the radiance of the glory of Christ because the Son is the radiance of God's glory. So when we say that we want to pursue 
conformity to the image of Christ, we're literally saying we are pursuing the glory of God because God is most glorified in Christ. Second of all, remember how we define God's glory, that it is the display of His holiness, of His character, of His nature and qualities. But the overarching attribute of God's glory, of God's attributes, is His holiness. And notice how Paul describes in Ephesians 1 for what God chose us to be. He said, God chose us before the foundation of the earth to be holy and blameless. Whenever God's holiness is displayed, you have a picture of God's glory. So when God says, I'm choosing you to be holy and blameless, He's literally saying, I am choosing you so that you might be a display of my glory. Thirdly, we saw earlier how every blessing Paul describes in Ephesians 1, every blessing we receive was so that we might be for the purpose of His glory, for the praise of His glory. That's why God has chosen us. That's why God predestined us. That's why God redeemed us. That's why God has forgiven us. That's why God has given us the promised Holy Spirit as a guarantee. All of it God did with this end in mind, the glory of God. Everything in our salvation, including our maturity and conformity to Christ, is designed by God to magnify not our worth, but the glory of God. So the end goal of our maturity, dear friends, the end goal of our conformity to Christ is the glory of God. Now when we talk about the bringing glory to God, we often limit that to simply saying or to simply this idea that all we're called to do is to acknowledge the glory of God. And there's, there's plenty of evidence in the New Testament and the Old that we Christians, that His creature, His creatures are called to acknowledge the glory of God. The angels do that. They declare, holy, holy, holy. The whole earth is filled with God's glory. So in one way we glorify God is to acknowledge it, to declare it. That's the easy part. The second way and the most important way and the most difficult way to glorify God is not to declare it but to display it. And we display that to the degree in which we are conformed to the image of Christ. That is the most difficult part of glorifying God. We display the glory of God when we display His attributes, His image, His likeness in our lives. So how does glory and maturity connect? Are these two different goals for us? Are they identical? Here are two statements I'd like to make for the relationship between God's glory and our maturity. Number one, the ultimate goal of our maturity is the glory of God. Number two, the primary way we pursue God's glory is by pursuing maturity. To say that we exist to glorify God, and by the way, there are so many churches, there are so many organizations in their purpose statement in their statement of a vision they say we exist to glorify God by and then there's some things 
But to say that we exist to glorify God without being interested in growing in conformity to Him is a great act of hypocrisy. To say that you're interested in glorifying God, but you're not interested in displaying His glory, you are a hypocrite. I am a hypocrite. We are hypocrites. Because to say that we, are, we find our existence in the glory of God or for the purpose of glorifying God means to say that we're committing ourselves to display the glory of God, not just to declare it. You know what's amazing, dear friends? That God created us and he redeemed us so that the world will praise God because they see God's glory and qualities in us. Not so much that we would praise God, but that the whole universe, all the heavenly realms, everybody, everyone on earth and the heavenly realms would look at us at what God has done in humanity and say, wow, the glory of God. It's always easier to declare the glory of God than displaying it. If we as a church are serious about, re- about committing ourselves to the glory of God, we have to understand that glorify God means to display God's glory. This means that pursuing God's glory and pursuing Christ-like maturity are not two different goals. We glorify God when we are growing in our conformity to the image of Christ. We live life to the praise of God's glory when we seek to conform to the image of God. Many people say, well, I want to do this for the glory of God. I want to sing for the glory of God. I want to serve for the glory of God. What they're saying usually, I want God to get the credit. And that's great. That's wonderful. That's another way we we can glorify God. But ultimately, we glorify God when we are conformed to the image of His Son. Through our service, through our singing, through our fellowship, through everything we do, through the way we work Monday through Friday in society, through everything we do as we conform to the image of Christ, we glorify God. Now last fall, we celebrated, Park Hill celebrated 80 years of existence and 40 years of being in this location. And at the end of the service, if you remember, if you were here, we all stood up and we committed ourselves to exist, to live for the glory of God. Today, we're doing that again when we commit ourselves to follow maturity, when we commit as a congregation to be about conformity to the image of Christ so that we may present everyone perfect in Christ. Why? Because it is only as we mature in Christ that we grow in our display of the glory of God. So as Park Hills Baptist Church, we want to identify the reason for our existence as a local church to be the following. And consider this as a last statement of the sermon series. We, as Park Hills Baptist Church, exist to glorify God by pursuing His eternal plan to bring people to maturity in Christ in order to be a reflection of God's wisdom holiness, and love for all people. That is what we call God is calling us to be. That is what we want to commit ourselves to pursue. It is to this end that I pray that God would enable Parkinson's Baptist Church to exist for decades 
and centuries until the Lord will come again to the glory of God by pursuing his eternal plan to bring everyone to maturity in Christ in order to be a reflection of God's wisdom, holiness, and love towards all people. Let us pray. Father, this morning we declare that above all else, we desire your glory. We desire to see your glory, and we desire to display your glory. Lord, we believe the word which tells us that the more we look into the glory of the, of the Christ, the more we will be transformed, transformed into his likeness with ever-increasing glory. Lord, this is the desire of our hearts. Teach us, mold us, change us, empower us for your glory. Amen. Let's continue to worship the Lord with a final song. I think we'll reflect what our desire is as a congregation. If you would please stand. I think this is an older song, but uh, I praise God for songs like this that remind us where our hearts need to be. Thank you for being with us on the Sunday morning. For those of you who have visited with us, we invite you back. You're welcome any Sunday on uh, 11 o'clock in this place. Also want to let you know that next week we are going to have a special guest preacher. Encourage you to come and uh, be a part of the service next week. And uh, next week the guest preacher is actually from our own congregation. And I praise God for, uh, for our brother Sam Echeverria who will preach to us the word of God. We want to be a church that encourages you to proclaim the word of God in all kinds of spheres, and including in the preaching of God's word on Sunday morning. So I uh, encourage you to pray for him and come and be a part of what God will do and what God will speak to us through uh, Samuel Echeverria. May God bless you. And let me uh, end the service with a final prayer.
May the God of peace, who through the blood of the eternal covenant, brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, equip us with everything good for doing his will. And may he work in us what is pleasing to him through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen.